telescope types versus object types on episode 385 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up the night sky. And this podcast is for everybody likes to go out under the stars. Shane, I was remiss a couple weeks ago now, or when this is coming out, it'll be uh, probably three weeks ago. Um, I needed to put a shout out to Chris K, who had sent us um, these really cool pens they have a built-in red light i think i sent you a photo of that Do you remember seeing that yeah yeah i do and i've got to get you yours we're we were talking we're going to meet up here at some point and uh and i'll i'll get you yours i've i've got mine out here it's uh it's been really cool uh chris and i have been communicating uh for a long time and he and he sent us these uh these lights that have uh they have like a red bulb around the uh sort of writing component of it and uh yeah, it's it's really really cool. And then Chris also said that this officially makes us pen pals. And oh, uh, I he's, thought he's appealing to your punny heart. Oh man, let me tell you, <laughs> when I get emails like that, my heart just wells with joy. <laughs> you know, I'm excited for this pen. I've had a couple of these in the past, and they're wonderful because, like, I like to write my observing notes on a pad of paper at the eyepiece. And it's a pain to try to like, you know, put the flashlight in my mouth so that it's shining on the paper so I can see what I'm writing. And I've had, uh, I've had a couple of these red light pens in the past that have worked exceptionally well. Uh, it's just the ink cartridge is like a really weird proprietary thing that I've never been able to find in the, at least in the versions that I've had in the past. So I'm, I'm happy to get another one coming. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, let's see. So did you get any observing in recently, Shane? Really just some light observing. Um, so my wife and I, we've booked a trip to uh, Cuba in uh, at the end of January. And I'm going to take my little uh, sort of suitcase concept telescope down there, hoping to see some of the uh, Southern Hemisphere objects that just sort of pop up around the horizon. Uh, so I'll be at about 20 degrees latitude. And, you know, you can get the Southern Cross and Eta Carina and a few other interesting things uh, that I've never seen before, uh, despite being at those latitudes in the past. So uh, I'm going to make a better effort on this trip. And um, as such, I'm taking my little Borg 71 millimeter refractor. Uh, mm -hmm. And I really haven't used it a lot at night. Like I've played around with it here and there, um, but I've used it mostly for like white light solar observing. And when I have used it at night, I've used it largely in two inch mode. So some real big wide field uh, views for this trip. I want to, I want to go ultra lightweight, so I will only be doing inch and a quarter. And Chris, you know all about these Borgs that once you start messing around with like, say, going from two inch to inch and a quarter, you don't even know if it'll come to focus anymore. You might have to buy some more adapters or spacers or whatever. And uh, I wanted to make sure that this thing would work for me. Um, and it did. So I did some right. late obser observing of Jupiter. Um Hyades, Pleiades, that type of stuff. And, uh, and that was it. Nothing too exciting. Um, how about you? Well, I, uh, I got out last night. Uh, Mike actually, uh, came over. Oh, and I meant to, meant to mention that Chris also looks like he bought one of those Borg 50 millimeter acros hmm. recently. And we were talking about that before the show too. I just forgot to mention that we were doing our intro here. Yeah. You know, what, what's sort of related to that and interesting is I think Borg has reissued maybe 
the Mini 50, um, but oh. it's, a, it's a 54 millimeter Acromat. And I think it's like F5.4 or 5.6, something weird. Um, okay. So it's just slightly bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, I've noticed them popping up on BuyEE's site. And if you go Ooh. to Astro Hue Tech, um, they're there as well, available brand new. So. Oh, okay. Because I think I thought I saw one and I thought it was like a typographical error or something, you know? Well, yeah, like often the Borg, uh, like adapters, they all have numbers on them. Um, and I just thought like mini Borg 54 was maybe just a new part number, but no, it's actually, I think it's a new objective. Oh, I I don't know anything about it other than that. Yeah. Well, the Borg 50 has been one of my favorite little scopes, um, simply because, you know, the way that I have it configured anyway, I can get a 10.5 degree true field of view. Uh, which is quite nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, like what you can do with these things again, because of the modular concept, um, like really it, it's pretty much anything you want, um, whether, yeah, like you want to go for a giant 10 degree field or just make like a, an exceptionally nice 50 millimeter finder. Yeah. Um, like I've configured it for that mode and I drop a 25 millimeter plossal in there and it, it's quite nice. Um, yeah. Yeah. I like that little scope and it's so light and, you know, I just never thought that an F5 Acromat could be that good. Uh, like, and when I say that good, I really mean like how sharp the view is to the edge. Yes. It's not perfect, but my gosh, it is far better than anything I expected. Well, yeah. I mean, it's so good that I, if, if this, uh, F5.4 is around. I might even upgrade mine just mm-hmm. because, uh, I do like it so much and it's, it's a scope that gets an unusual amount of sky time here because like we were just talking with Alistair about seeing conditions and such. And, uh, you know, when the conditions are really, really bad, I will use that scope. Um, it gives you something that's beyond binoculars, but binocular like, and, um, uh, you know, if you are looking for something that sits between what really, really awesome binoculars can give you that are like small and handheld and what a small telescope can give you, uh, this this telescope kind of fits in this weird niche. I thought I wouldn't use it that much. And that first year I had it, I think I used it 10 or 12 times, uh, you know, solely as like that main scope. And and I use it, it's, it's highly configurable. So uh, last two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I was using it in finder scope mode on my five inch. So it, it's so, yeah, it's just a little telescope that can do a lot of different, uh, functions. So very cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Very cool. So yeah, I was out last night. My builder has been here building. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I keep, I'm walking around a little bit cause I thought I heard him come, but I don't know if he got a call or something and had to go cause he didn't come up and, uh, he has, uh, like an ATV that's pretty loud, but uh, maybe it was somebody else driving around. There's a lot of ATVs out here, but he put uh, a table in my observatory. It's actually a collapsible table that folds down and put some magnets on it. It's, it's so beautifully done, um, but we just have to figure out how to cut the corner because the corner kind of juts out a little bit to where you want to be when you're observing. Mm-hmm. And so we've got to take a look at that today, but it folds down so that uh, the hope is that what I can do is be in there and I can do different things in there, like record this podcast and not interfere with my wife and, uh, you know, uh, as well, just use it while I'm observing. 
And then what I wanted is if I did have a small crowd in there, like we noticed three people is fine, but if I had like four or five people in there, um, you'd want to have that extra, you know, 10 or 12 square feet. And so it's going to collapse down. The other thing that I wanted, again, not to take up any room when I had people in it is to, uh, to have a chart table. And so we designed it that it's going to fold out and up from the wall. And so again, uh, it will sort of just fold back against the wall, which I think will look cool because I have some big, cool charts and we'll be able to uh, stick those on there and use them to observe. And then when uh, when not in use, they'll just fold back against the wall. And, you know, I think charts look quite pretty anyway. So they'll just sort of sit there and look like a, a nice uh, star chart on the wall kind of thing, but it actually will be a, a usable thing. That's my design. So that one's a little bit in progress. So, but uh but yeah, Mike and I were out last night. You know what we tried? I didn't mention this to you, but this was cool. He brought out his 50 millimeter um, APM UFF. So his, we can, his which millimeter? 30? 30 millimeter. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a great IP. You have one of those, I believe. I do. Yeah. 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 It's it's quite nice. But we actually ran like a fairly long comparison between it and the Pentax 40, mm. um, which you know, people have said this before that it very much is like the 30 millimeter of the Pentax 40, which sort of strangely enough, the 30 millimeter Pentax is, is not like the 40 millimeter Pentax. It, it has some optical oddities. Uh, I've never looked through one, but from what I've heard, uh, but this did compare quite well with the 40 millimeter. And we did compare it to the 32 millimeter Massiama. It does have a noticeably smaller field of view. Yeah, yeah, because it's what seventy degrees, 70. and the Masuyama is what eighty-five. It it says eighty-five, but yeah. I wondered how much less it it actually was. But it is mm. significant. Like you definitely notice, it is a smaller field of view. Uh, the stars are very tight and sharp in the thirty millimeter UFF compared to the uh, Masuyama, and uh, yeah, we did notice that, and also. Uh, the, uh, the Masuyama does have some, uh, like field softness in the outer edge that you kind of like, if you do want to take advantage of that added field, you kind of have to refocus it. So, okay. so there's that, uh, sort of strictly as a finder, if you're only using something as a finder, I think that the Masuyama is, it is wider. So you, it was easier to find stuff with it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, as well, we did notice that on the Pleiades, it, it seemed like the Massiema maybe could see some of the nebulosity, maybe a little bit better, but it was, it was hard to tell because things were a little bit inconsistent, but, uh, definitely the, the 30 millimeter UFF is an awesome eyepiece. And I think a little bit easier to get and maybe even less expensive than the, than the Massiema. So, uh, yeah, excellent eyepiece for sure. It would be interesting to continue the transparency comparisons between those two on a good mm-hmm. night. Um, I think if there's one knock on the UFF, um, I believe it's it's in the transparency. Like there's a lot of comparisons uh, between the UFF and the 31 millimeter Nagler. Oh, okay. And uh, most people seem to like the UFF just because it's like much, much lighter. Mm-hmm. It's also a lot cheaper, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Um, but I believe the Nagler has better throughput, uh, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. Um, although even though I have both eyepieces, I've never really done much of a comparison, hmm. uh, to be candid since I acquired the UFF, 
I may not really have used my Nagler since just because of how heavy it is. And, you know, the Nagler is a fine eyepiece. It's just, you need a bit of a beefier telescope and, you mm -hmm. know, trying to run uh, like a 31 millimeter Nagler on some of yeah. the smaller telescopes that I use. I just don't like the balance issues that it causes. Well, look, I've got a permanent setup now, so I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse, but you can just leave it here. I will take oh, great wow. care of it. Okay. When you come out, you can use it at your leisure. So <laughs> well, there's let, an offer for you. Let me take that away for consideration. <laughs> um, had the five inch up. We uh, are still trialing the observatory. I was talking to you a bit mm. while we were trialing because I was getting frustrated. And mm -hmm. as as somebody with a um, at, at least a multi decadal experience working in the IT industry, I got to say I hate technology and tel telescopes. I feel like it's it's just a bad implementation. Um, and I was struggling with that. And I I think I did figure out what I was doing wrong, which is I was not closing the um, a, a zemoth clutch when I was doing my second star find. Uh, mm. I, I don't know whether I just wasn't thinking about it. It was a mistake or I thought it didn't matter, but it does, I guess. And we were chatting with Alistair. So I, I got to give this another shot at getting the, the thing aligned and also at getting the telescope um, better balance. Like last week when I had the four inch in there, I was able to get a balance. So I really could just kind of use it. And then, um, use it much more in a manual mode, but I couldn't quite get the five inch as well balanced to, uh, to, to find stuff. So I think I'm going to need another few nights with, uh, with the five inch and, and continue to sort things out. And it's also, it's still a construction zone. So there's ladders and saws and, you know, uh, drills and that, that are, you know, drilled pieces and that, that are around, um, so yeah, it's it's still a construction zone. So we didn't even bring up star charts last night. So we were just kind of poking around. I did a sketch of M35 because uh, Michael Wright, he's the president now of the uh, RESCKW Center mm -hmm. uh, in Kitchener-Waterloo. And uh, I attended the uh, Friday night meeting of the KW Center because I'm I'm a member there and I've been attending meetings for, for a little while, sort of on and off over the past year. And, uh, and yeah, he's a listener of ours and he just became uh, president of the center. So congratulations to Michael on that. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Congrats, Michael. That's great. Yeah. Shane and I have both been presidents. So our, our, our congratulations and condolences. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Best of luck, sir. Best of luck. Exactly. But I think he'll do an awesome job because, uh, he's uh, a really great visual observer and, uh, and sketcher we've kind of been chatting about some of that as well so he he gives me assignments from time to time and uh well, i ask for them uh he does these uh, messy minutes so um, mm -hmm. i asked him what was next i've sent him a few so far and he was kind enough to put them in uh, his sketches are far better than mine but uh, he sort of graciously puts puts the odd one of mine in there when i send it and uh, I, I did get a sketch off of m35 last night i got to get a better scan to send to him but that was my first sketch in the observatory so i uh, i thought that was kind of cool that uh, maybe we'll go into the next uh, presentation at the kw center and i attend remotely it's in kitchener waterloo ontario which is in the uh, eastern time zone but if people are out there and they are also remote people and looking for an astronomy club of some sort. I, I always think people should try to get involved in the closest one to them. But uh, but if not, uh, I know that uh, people from all over can can join the KW Center. I certainly have. So it's a pretty great group there. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, a good shout out. So speaking of great groups, we have a great group of listeners. 
And we are very fortunate because we get emails uh, almost every day from people with uh, really great questions. And we had one from Justin this week that uh, it this one really spoke uh, to me, Shane, on telescope types versus um, object types. And I just like that as a title in itself. And I, so I wrote him and said, hey, can we just use that for a quick show before the holidays? And he said, absolutely, go for it. So maybe mm-hmm. I'll just read this and, and we can have, have a bit of a chat on what telescopes meet up well with what object types. How does that sound? Yeah, go for it. All right. So uh, Justin goes on to write, hi, guys. Love the podcast. Keep up the great work. I'm only caught up to episode 80 or so. So apologies that this has been discussed at length in a future episode. I have a long way to go to catch up. It it has been kind of, but I'm not sure that we've uh, maybe given it a specific attention, though. But I could be wrong there, Shane. Yeah, well, this is what I love about the listener emails is, you know, after, well, we're getting close to that 400 episode count mm-hmm. and like, I really don't believe we've re- like really dedicated a, a show to this. And, uh, I think it's a great question. Um, and I'm sure that, you know, it, it came from one person, but I'm sure there's many other people mm-hmm. that have the same, uh, questions in their mind. So this is, this is an awesome topic. I'm glad Justin sent it in. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, Justin was going to say, but I was wondering if you could describe your opinions on the types of objects you would observe with different types of telescopes. Obviously, you can point any telescope at anything, but for example, Maksudovs are renowned for their planetary and lunar views uh, due to their long focal length, where Dobsonian light buckets excel at really dim objects, uh, galaxies, etc., because they have a lot of light gathering power. Uh, Where do short focal length refractors fall into the spectrum, like your mini Borg or short tube 80s? And does this go far uh, enough that it would affect the observing list you would put together based on the telescope you had out that evening? For reference, I own a 10-inch Dobsonian and a little AT60 60-millimeter F6 refractor. That's like a beautiful, perfect combination of two different telescope types, I think. Uh, my dob is my workhorse, and I generally point it at anything smaller than one degree wide. While my 60 is purely a wide field scope for big clusters like Malat 20 and the Pleiades. So Malat 20 is the Alpha Persei moving group, which is right in the middle of uh, the constellation Perseus. And the Pleiades, of course, is uh, one of the brightest open star clusters up in Taurus. Uh, I'm struggling to think of much else to use the 60 millimeter for. Uh, most things I can think of uh, say, uh, why wouldn't I just use my Dobsonian for this? Uh, planetary views are okay in the 60, but I find my aperture fever uh, limits my desire to look through the smaller instrument in favor of the larger instrument because it performs so much better on anything small and dim. Thanks, Justin. Well, thanks so much for your uh, email, Justin. I think this is a really nice little short topic for Shane and I to uh dive into before the holiday season. How's that sound, Shane? Let's dive in. All right. So let's just start. I just went through all I've done for show notes. I don't know how long or short this would be, hopefully on the shorter side, but I just listed them. We've got Maxudovs, assuming a six or seven inch Maxudov. Um, what would be your observing list for uh, such an instrument if we were to match telescope types with objects to observe, knowing that anybody who owns any telescope can give it a try and point it at just about anything. But what would you match Max Sudoff uh, telescopes with? 
Well, Maksudov's uh, claim to fame is their refractor-like views, but at a much uh, lower cost than, a, mm -hmm. say, an ap apochromatic refla uh, refractor. And slightly uh, higher resolution because they have more aperture, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. The You know, you can get a 7-inch Maksudov for a fraction of the price of what a 7-inch uh, apochromat would cost you. Um, and you know, the value is really, really strong there. Um, so typically, you know, a Maksutov is known as a, a planetary killer. Like it, it's really nice to observe the planets with, uh, and double stars. Um, the, the trade-off with the Maksutov is that the field of view will not be very wide. So for extended objects and, you know, large clusters, um, you're, you're probably not going to be able to frame it in one field of view, even if you're using a low power wide field eyepiece. Um, hence they typically are used for, again, that solar system stuff, uh, and some double stars. What are your thoughts, Chris, okay. uh, on Maksutov pairing with objects? So I own a Maksutov. I own a beautiful one that I'm maybe slowly selling um, to a listener. So I own a six inch. The The great advantage of the Maksutov, again, is that planetary uh, performance. Uh, it really, a six inch Maksutov really does give you views similar to like a four inch apochromat um when it's well cooled uh with sort of the resolution of of the larger aperture so it's a really nice combination of course it it is a little bit of a challenge because the the cool down especially like here where we live um i've scarcely used my my six inch maxudov because the cool down mm -hmm. uh, is a bit of a challenge and i know um there's different approaches that you can use for that such as storing it in cold storage uh, and or using um, some of this uh, uh, silver bubble wrap that I know a few of my my friends have used to uh, make sure that they uh, have appropriate cool down for that instrument. But yeah, I think they do work well, but I didn't just use mine for planets. I, I used it a lot on deep sky objects as well. I had a two inch focuser on it and would put like a 30 or 40 millimeter eyepiece in there. And uh, yeah, I would just observe everything with it. I I really didn't just look at planets, but uh, sort of the, the main purpose of getting the scope was to uh, get really good planetary observations in. So yeah, if you're going to pair it strictly to uh, something like the planets, then uh, something like a six or seven inch Max Sudov can make a great instrument for those. Uh, I, I think though, you do need to take that special care, which, which I did, which is to keep the the telescope somewhere cool and then mm -hmm. to to look up uh using some of that reflectix or whatever it's called uh wrap mm -hmm. in order to uh stabilize it uh thermal in, in a thermal way yeah yeah the uh the 16 millimeter zeiss abbey ortho that i have that we used out at your place mm. recently mm. um is not going to stay in my collection i don't think oh. I, it's a fine fine eyepiece but what i've decided is to put it up on offer for trade for some TMB super monos. Mm. So I can just keep acquiring those for bino viewing purposes. Uh, and the reason I'm mentioning this is I, I had somebody respond and offer an eight inch Maksutov, uh, in exchange and I declined. What? Why? Uh, Cause that would be like an intakes, wouldn't it? No, no, it was a Skywatcher. And they only make like the one, inch. one. Oh yeah. Maybe it was a seven inch. Yeah, Must you're right. It wasn't a 200 millimeter. It was a 185 Still. or 180. Yeah. I, I don't say that as a negative thing because I've looked through that instrument. It's really good. And actually Alistair has been using one too, the 180 millimeter Maxuda from Skywatcher. It has a good rep. 
Yeah, it does. It does. Uh, I've had uh, multiple five-inch Maksudovs, and the cooling aspects that you mentioned is is what's keeping me away. I just uh, I'm not I'm not a patient man. Sometimes when I'm out observing, and and I just don't want to wait for it to cool down. Again, Shane, the offer stands. Uh, I have lots of cold places here uh, to store instruments. You're more than welcome to keep it here and to use it uh, at, at your leisure and pleasure. <laughs> Let's just simplify this, Chris. How about I store everything at your place? <laughs> I have room. I have I have infinite room for telescope storage here. It's like a strange thing. Mm, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, that's neat. That would be neat. I think you should get it. I, I think you should do that because you can always get the money out of it. Those are good instruments. They've been on the market for a long time and have a proven track record. You could try it. Yeah, yeah, that would be yeah. fun. No, no, I'm passing. Um, not not today anyway. So Darn. Yeah. Darn. All right. Um, are we done on Max Sudoff? Shall we move on to the I next? So. All yeah, right. Let's go. Yeah, we'll go to, and we're, we're I'm limiting us to um, sort of the more common uh, sizes and focal lengths, um, knowing that instruments of all types can come in large and smaller size and assortments and blah, 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 just, just because, um, yeah. So Smikasagrain eight inch to 11 inch F tens what, what pairs well with these instruments? Um, these are sort of your Swiss army knife. I think like, um, a lot of people have Cassegrains, at least in our club here in Regina, there's a lot of Cassegrains, uh, all over the place. I think one of the reasons they're popular is if you want to get into astrophotography, these things out of the box are maybe some of the more capable ones. Uh, and maybe the astrophotographers will yell at me because that's not correct, but I think that's usually the draw. Um, but they, kind of work good on everything and that aperture you know you're you're starting to be able to really get into some galaxy hunting the best view i've had of the dumbbell nebula was through a cassegrain uh, yeah. an 11 inch cassegrain uh, i've had some outstanding planetary views uh through cassegrains uh, they really perform quite well on a number of different objects. Uh, maybe the downside or, or the con against them, which is similar to the Maksudov, two of them, one cooling, which we've already talked about. And then the other is the, uh, again, the wide field views are just not there with the Cassegrains because the focal length is quite long. Mm -hmm. Um, and that can, uh, you know, make some of those extended objects not fit very well. Mm -hmm. so that's my two cents. What are you, what, what's your thoughts on the Cassegrain? Yeah, I'm with you on that. They're like a jack of all trades type instrument. Mm -hmm. And I think that I think that for a lot of people they can be a great instrument. Out here though, as as you kept reminding me when uh when I was, you know, trying to select a telescope for my observatory, the the challenge becomes simply that, you know, you have uh have that cooling to contend with. So yeah, mm -hmm. I, mm -hmm. I agree with you there. All right. Um Let's see. How about Dobsonians? Say eight-inch to sixteen-inch Dobsonians. Yeah. Okay. Now, now we're getting into some real big aperture or potential for big aperture. Um, so Dobsonians, um, I would say galaxies. You know, like go after those faint objects. They're great there. They're great with nebula. Um, and depending on on the uh, uh, veins that hold the secondary mirror. If they're just straight, they have different, you know, like the diffraction spikes around a star are different than refractors or compound telescopes. Um, like it's it basically makes it look like a plus sign, the star with the diffraction uh, spikes. 
Um, but if you get curved veins, then those spikes disappear and they become actually quite nice for, uh, some double star hunting because then there's no diffraction that gets in the way of where your companion star might be located. So, um, there's sort of a, a neat tool for that as well. Um, and you know, depending on, on the Dobsonian, you sometimes can overcome that narrow field of view because some of these are quite fast optics, which allows for a relatively, you know, wide field of view too. So, you know, you can start to get into some of the extended objects as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those, those large Dobsonians, nothing really beats them. I think, um, like Justin's setup there with the 10 inch and the 60 is kind of ideal because you can really get into some of those faint galaxies. All right. Uh, refractors. I'm going to start with this one. This is the one I've been kind of waiting for sure. small refractors. This is like really my bag. <laughs> if, if I have one, uh, some of the things that I think the small refractor works well, like a 60 millimeter in particular, I have a 60 millimeter F6 as well. I spend a lot of time observing Venus with it because Venus is a very bright target. And of course, the smaller aperture doesn't collect as much light. So use the, the sort of weakness, so to speak, as the strength. And again, uh, for lunar observation, probably 90% of my lunar observations, if I'm making lunar observations in the past six years have been done with that 60 millimeter telescope. Um, Shane, do you have any comments on that before I move ahead? Because you also have small 60 millimeter, 50 millimeter telescopes that you use on those targets too, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. They work great on a variety of targets and, um, the, the versatility of the, like the, sh the smaller refractors, smaller refractors are typically not always, but typically, uh, faster instruments and, uh, the versatility of being able to add a Barlow very quickly, uh, for magnification and, and still have a relatively decent field of view is, is appealing. So, you, you know, most of my telescopes would be considered small refractors too. My, my largest one is 102 millimeters, which in most people's, uh, definition would be a, a small telescope. Uh, the other thing, and Alistair was talking about this as well, with the smaller instruments, like four inches and under, you're looking through um, uh, an atmosphere that's more, uh, it's going to give you like the best uh, atmospheric scene conditions just because of the nature of the smaller aperture looking through columns of air that are approximately that size or smaller. So you do get sort of this artificial bump in your seeing conditions. And I've definitely noticed that with these smaller instruments, um, like the 50 millimeter F5, it's almost like it never has bad seeing. Mm -hmm. And the 60 millimeter is really close. The 60 millimeter is kind of like a sweet spot in the small apertures. Uh, it gives you super wide fields of view. You can look at planets with them and you're just not impacted by seeing cool down is there's no cool down issues. Um, it, it really is such a great little instrument. Uh, Justin, if you compare that 60 millimeter on Venus some evening or early in the morning, if you're hauling them out, um, you're going to see that right away. Um, the other thing is with the small instruments, uh, little refractors, uh, the Milky Way, amazing target. Looking at something like uh, Barnard's Loop, the Angelfish Nebula, North American Nebula, seeing all of the veil, um, those kind of targets, that is pretty ideal. Yeah. Yeah. They really excel for those objects. Uh, let's see. Larger refractor, Shane, what are your thoughts on these uh, strange people who buy large refractors, like six inches and larger? Um, well, the world's your oyster. You know, I, they really do everything well. Um, you can get some outstanding planetary views. Um, the aperture will 
will really create a nice sized image scale without, you know, getting too bright. Uh, I guess it depends on the aperture. I guess there is too bright, but, um, it'll be great for deep sky objects and you're still likely depending on the, the focal length, but you know, you're probably still able to achieve some decent wide fields as well. Yeah. And, uh, as such, yeah, you can pretty much look at anything and be really happy. Yeah. Yeah. I think with the larger apertures, it, it comes down to, uh, getting that high contrast plus getting some increased light gathering uh though you know five inches is pretty um mountable um relatively still easy to use uh getting up into the larger sizes but you know it's it's still a portable instrument but i think once you hit that six inch mark i think uh your portability is is greatly reduced um and your light gathering power uh does increase substantially though so uh, you're able to kind of still retain uh, many of the wide fields and and perhaps match some of the uh, sort of mid-range um reflectors uh, at the same time you are paying a premium for that even in the achromatic classes of instruments uh, in the mm -hmm. larger classes yeah yep agreed okay uh this is just a short episode anything else to add did we miss anything here shane no, it was fun uh, chat. It was quick. Um, certainly the parts that we didn't get into is, is um, kind of the physical aspects of some of these other considerations, mm -hmm. you know, just the mountability, the portability, um, you know, that adds a whole nother factor uh, to these conversations. Um, but maybe the biggest takeaway that I would like to leave folks with is it really doesn't matter which scope you have. You can look at everything. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they, they all work on all objects. Um, maybe one only one, one exception would be if you have a Herschel wedge for white light solar observing, you can't use that on a compound telescope. Uh, but I think outside of that use case, um, it really doesn't matter, you know, just buy a telescope and start looking at cool things. Cool. Well, thanks for this, Shane. Uh, thanks everybody for listening in 2023. Um, we do appreciate, uh, you taking the time to spend some of your days and, and uh, moments with us and sharing your observations and your show ideas. If you want to do that in 2024, you can always send those into actualastronomy at gmail.com. I hope everybody has a wonderful holiday season. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>